0: A quick note before we start the show, this episode includes graphic descriptions of violence. If you're sensitive around that sort of thing, you should probably skip this one. Thanks.
1: Can you describe your drug-induced state? What state did that drug put you in? Uh,
0: how
1: does it describe fucking morphine high? You know, morphine's a depressant. It's a painkiller. It's something that numbs you. When you shut your eyes, it's like you hear a noise. Like a... I want to say like a yawn. And... um, let me tell you about prison let me tell you about the attitude around emotional weakness when people used to come in from the courts they'd be carrying their little plastic bag or whatever clothes they had with them and they'd come in people would start kicking the doors and going hang yourself That would be the welcoming you would get coming into the prison. And some people did. That was the general attitude in prison. You need to harden the fuck up or kill yourself. It's not a place where the normal emotional spectrum is accepted or is functional. And for psychological survival, you do need to harden yourself. If you maintain the usual level of empathy or compassion that most people would have in society, you just couldn't deal with what you see. You just couldn't deal with the the heinous things that go on in there. So you harden yourself emotionally, you become callous. You develop that attitude. You know, harden up will kill yourself. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so prone to breaking down now if i see acts of goodness or acts of kindness you know if i see callous things i've seen so much of that that doesn't surprise me it doesn't shock me emotionally if i watch extreme home makeover or undercover boss i'm in tears every time
0: from radiotopia you're listening to love and radio i'm nick vanderkolk today's episode paremo remo featuring paul wood the guilty verdict came in.
1: I remember just feeling really angry and feeling that I hadn't been guilty of murder, that I should have been convicted of manslaughter. I remember at that point thinking to myself, okay, this is your new life. I just needed to forget about my old life, forget about the old world and just accept that this was my new reality. So fuck the world. something that people don't realise, particularly in the early phases of imprisonment, you, know, you don't tend to sit there going, oh, what I've done so wrong, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. People tend to wish they hadn't been caught, and they often resort to protecting themselves and not having to deal with the reality of what they've done by making themselves the victim in a situation. Oh, the judge, the jury, the police, you know, everyone else is to blame. And I was certainly well in that myself. So I hung out with people who taught me what prison values were, about the ideas of escalating violence, about the normalization of extreme violence as well. Tell
0: me about fights that you mentioned before that.
1: From as early as I can remember, you know, you had fights to see who was the toughest in your class, in your year, in the school. That was just how things happened. You know, I don't ever recollect being a bully, but I definitely recollect always being prepared and keen to fight. I don't know, it was just such a big thing being perceived to have balls when I was growing up, you know? To just not back down from anything or anyone. And, you know, it got me into trouble on numerous occasions, but also it was something, I think, that got me a lot of respect from my peer group. You know, I want to emphasize that I didn't come from a violent home, my parents weren't violent, but us boys certainly were. Remember one instance in particular, I think it was the first time I ever realized that violence wasn't necessarily a normal thing. I remember getting into a fight with my older brother, Andrew. Andrew maybe had changed the channel on the TV. And then I had got up to fight with him about that because basically the toughest person controlled what was on TV. It's just a that went. I think I would have been about maybe 10 at the time. There's no way I could beat him physically. He's four years older than me. And I remember going straight to the knife drawn, grabbing a knife out. We actually had a kid staying at our house at the time. And he'd been sitting in the lounge watching all of this develop. Andrew and I in a sort of Hollywood-style knife fight, circling each other (laughs) and me lunging at him. I'm pretty sure, in fact, there was only even a bread knife. But I remember this kid running out of the room crying. And I remember both Andrew and I just stopping and just wondering what the fuck just happened. And then I remember mum sitting me down later that night and just saying, you know, Not everyone's as violent as you boys. And I remember that being a real shock to me. Yeah. Did you do well? I mean, when you went (coughs) to prison, was that an environment that you were successful in? Yeah, I, I think I adapted fairly quickly and fairly well to the prison environment. Perhaps too well in some respects. I was always trying to be the best I could be and unfortunately in the prison environment that's not in a positive direction. I felt that, you know, they want to say I'm a fucking murderer, I'll I'll fucking alter the bad. One of the things you have to understand about prison is that it's all about form, it's all about respect. And in order for people to be perceived as having form, to be honourable, to be compliant with the value code, they can't let people get away with anything. So if there's any disagreement or any perceived slight, then what people do is they attack the person who's responsible for that or is perceived as responsible. If you're the victim of that, then what's required of you in the prison code, if you don't win that fight, then you need to go and tool up. You need to get a shank, you need to get a club, you need to do something and you need to attack that other person and escalate the violence. Because as soon as some people perceive you as being victimizable, then others will as well. And that is a life that's not worth living in prison. i tell you that much. When mum first got sick. And I just remember, you know, being confronted with this idea that she could die. Yeah. Looking back on it now, you know, that coincides with the period where I started hanging out with older antisocial people. Well, antisocial, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's a fair reflection. You know, there were people who did crime and got into fights and that, but they weren't bad people. It's just how it was. I think that was my way of coping with it, was to sort of distance myself from the family in some respects. Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun in those days. I started selling drugs when I was about 13. An older guy who I'd actually knew through martial arts, and I remember him pulling out an ounce of weed and telling me that he'd give me this and I just had to give him 300 bucks in a couple of weeks. And I took the weed, It just gave me this idea of this easy life, this easy money. You know I had a car in fourth form when I was 14. I didn't see the value in anything else. I thought that you know you got an education so you could get a job but what a mugs game. Who would want a job? Made me feel important and capable and I don't know special maybe. Also made me feel that I could get away with lots. I remember when I was at Wellington Prison, when I was at Mount Crawford, I still had this idea that I was, you know, some kind of tough guy. In subsequent years, when I got up to parry, up to maxi, it became readily apparent to me that I was not a bad motherfucker in the least. Parry's where you get sent when you get kicked out of other prisons. It's where just about everyone's serving very long sentences, decade plus life sentences, 20 years plus. And that creates a really different environment. I remember walking down the landing. The landing's like a big lino strip that goes between the blocks. And I remember just walking past and having some massive big black power guy who spent a lot of time in the gym. I was just a huge dude, full facial tattoos, just yelling out to me so angry. I'm going to fucking kill you, you white cunt. And just... You know, just being like, fuck, I was 20 at this time. You know, and I thought myself a grown up and an adult, but man, I was not prepared for just the intensity and the insanity of that place. Whereas in other prisons, it might start with a fist fight and parry a lot of the time, it would just be straight to a stabbing or a clubbing. I remember one time watching one of the guards go to unlock a door and watching an inmate pull out, a length of steel it used to be the handle on a mop bucket people would snap those off and then sharpen up one side of it and turn it into a really substantial blade i remember watching this inmate walk up to him and pull out this knife and go to stab him up under the ribs and i remember watching the guard just turn his hand just in time to get stabbed through the hand instead of up under into the rib cage and then then proceed to roll around and fight on the floor, where the guard then got stabbed multiple times more before the breakup occurred. I remember on one occasion, this would have been when I was 14, going on 15 maybe, breaking into the Karori Mall. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna rob the store that sells all the auto tickets, all the cigarettes. So I remember climbing up on the roof and I remember hitting this window with reinforced wire in it and cracking it, but shortly after I did that I remember hearing footsteps on the roof and the roof had a variety of different architectural features on it which meant it wasn't just a flat roof. And I remember looking up over the top and seeing flashlights and cobs walking around on the roof and I remember thinking, okay, I've got to get out of here, but they're going to recognize me. So what I did is I took my T-shirt off and I wrapped it around my head like a road worker and I waited until they were really close to me on one side and then I ran up a steep incline on the roof on the other and just started sprinting with him chasing me. There were a number of verandas on the roof which got lower and lower towards the ground until it was only a story higher. When I got to the end, I just leapt as far as I could and I jumped right over the head of a cop who was waiting below and I hit the concrete in the car park, I rolled and I got up sprinting. And while this had gone on, my friends who I'd been drinking with had been over at the library and they'd been yelling and shouting, cheering me on as the cops were chasing me around on the roof. And I subsequently heard from them that the police were looking for a light-skinned Polynesian. So my disguise had worked. (sighs) Yeah, and I think that sort of sums up my attitude at the time. I thought it was like a game of cat and mouse. I thought it was entertaining. I was out in the yard with a guy who was from the cell next to me. We had just finished smoking a giant. And as we were just walking up and down, having a chat up and down the yard, there was a black power guy in the yard as well. As we walked past him, he pulled out a short weight bar for a dumbbell without the weights on it, just the bar, and swung the bar at the guy who was next to me, who was closest to him. Fortunately, he managed to put up his hand and block it from his head. And it broke his arm, and I remember at this time going to the guy I was with, going, okay, let's go take him. You know, we can definitely take this guy. It's like two of us on him. I've fought people with weapons before, you know, wait for the swing, then go in, right? The guy I was with, who had been in Paris for about eight years and knew the place well, said to me, it's not him we need to worry about. It's the rest of his crew all tooled up inside, waiting for us to come back in that we need to worry about. We need to get in now, we need to tool up, and we need to be ready. So as soon as we could, we got into the block, we got magazines, we taped them to our bodies so that hopefully our organs wouldn't get penetrated when we were stabbed. I got two socks and put two DD batteries inside them, the big batteries, to use that as a kosh, to use that as a club. And this is the kind of stuff you learn in Perry. you need to use two socks, because if you use one, often it will tear and the batteries will fly out. You know, the guy I was with went and got a long ice pick like shank that he had made out of some grating. I was just waiting with this fucking cosh in my hand, ready to cave this guy's fucking head in. And then within about half an hour, the guy who had attacked us in the yard came into the cell and this black power member said you guys are fucking lucky I will fucking fuck you up if you ever smoke weed in front of me again and don't offer me some and then he left the guy who had been hit with the weight bar told me okay we've got to take this guy out you know we can't let this stand so the plan he came up with was to wait for this guy to be coming out of the showers and for me to distract this guy and for him to come up behind him, stab him in the throat. This was a normal solution. This was a parry solution. This was in line with what you do and how you behaved. You know, it never occurred to me to, like, go and speak to the guards or to get asked to be moved anywhere. That wasn't even on my horizon, not even on my radar. But I knew that this was just going to be just the most serious escalation. I was really in two minds about it. I didn't want to be involved in it, but I also knew that if something didn't happen in response to this, then my ability to survive on a day-to-day basis would be seriously jeopardised. I remember going and talking to a guy I was friends with who I knew from wanting to prison, a nomad guy, or a guy, Ronald. And he said to me, man, you're just a neutral. You know, there's a whole gang of these guys in there. You can't, you know, you can't do anything. You don't need to do anything. You know, don't think less of yourself for not backing up in this situation. There's nothing you can do here. There's no reasonable approach for you. You just need to let this go. And that's what I decided to do. For about the next three or four months that I was there, you know, I would go down into the mess room, into the dining room, and I would see them talking and looking at me, and I would know that they were talking about me every day, every day at unlock, I would be awake, and I would be peeking out, and I would just be waiting, waiting for this attack. And every night, about four o'clock, when we had lock up, and the bars would close. I would literally just, just physically, for the first time, be able to relax and just not have to worry about being attacked. I was just lucky I wasn't there for long. And the only reason I wasn't there for long is that I applied under the Official Information Act to be able to look through my file, my prison file. And when I looked at the transfer form that had been used to move me to Parry, I noticed that under the reasons stated for my removal that they said I was from Auckland and they were moving me back to be closer to my family, which meant they'd filled out the form fraudulently. Let me tell you the fucking relief that I felt when I knew I was leaving Parry. I didn't tell anyone because I did not want to get attacked just before I left. So I kept it on the total down low. And then I remember seeing the guy, seeing the guy who had attacked us with a weight bar when he saw me leaving the block and realised I was leaving the block. And I saw the look of, of shock and disappointment on his face that I was getting away from this situation. I just want to talk a little bit
0: about how that changed you, that experience.
1: I think what that experience taught me is, or one of the things it taught me is that, you know, I just... I wasn't someone who felt comfortable with the level of violence required to really be at home in that kind of place. You know, I was still, at this period as well, I was still having a lot of nightmares about my offence and yeah, I just the whole thing. One of the seminal experiences I had in Parry was actually talking to Guy Ken. He was a really smart guy, you know, he was a Mensa member. He was a super smart guy. I remember him one day in the yard with a heavy metal ashtray and a tennis ball and him asking me, if I drop these at the same time, which will hit the ground first? And I remember thinking, what a stupid fucking question. Of course the fucking heavy ashtray is going to hit the ground first. You drop those, and they both hit the ground at the same time. I remember being blown away, like you'd be blown away watching a magic trick. And then he explained to me this idea of gravity, and that it's not actually the weight of the objects, it's the pull of gravity, which is the same on both of them, which makes them hit the ground. I'd always been someone who liked to think I was right about everything. I was very righteous as an individual. I'd always imagined that the world was the way I perceived it to be. Now here I was starting to, I don't know, question. Question my views a little bit. Question what I thought about things. I remember getting a call from dad. Yeah, just to say that mum's been diagnosed as being terminally ill. I was living out of home at the time. The people I was living with now were professional criminals, that's all they did. We were uh, dealing drugs, uh, fencing stolen goods, basically, if there there was an opportunity to make money from it, then that's what we were trying to do. I started getting access to and getting involved in uh, intravenous drug use, to shooting morphine into uh, converting poppies into opium into synthetic heroin and shooting that and used to go through the registered medical practitioners listed in the phone book and they'd normally leave their doctor's bags in their cars overnight which would have uh, pharmaceutical grade morphine and pepidine and other things in them so just break into their cars and steal those and again you know it was just an escalation and as I found harder and harder drugs that would dull any pain or any upset or any hurt I was feeling, then that became the drug of choice
0: did you feel guilty about what you were doing
1: i don 't think I did at that point no yeah i 'm not sure i 'm not sure I spent much time contemplating the rights and wrongs of what I was doing, but I do recollect that I thought that perhaps other people just didn't have the balls to do what I was doing. I used to read a lot of books about other people who were doing very hard prison, people in the Russian gulags, people in Leavenworth and Maximum Security in the US. Within those books, sometimes those people would mention the books they were reading, and some of those were philosophy, and that's where I really started questioning my own ideas about the world you know the fundamental questions in philosophy are what exists and what's real and then what can we know about what exists and what's real and then on that basis how should we act as individuals how should we act as a society how do you justify your behaviour you know what are the assumptions do those assumptions hold up and more and more, I just found myself in a position where my assumptions weren't holding up. And that's the thing people do. People, don't, people who engage in crime, people who are violent, don't walk around going, you know, I am an evil genius or an evil person who's just going to engage in this bad behaviour. What they do is they rationalise and they justify it to themselves. But I think the uncertainty in my beliefs that I gained through my education was crucial in to me, in, in respect of me no longer being able to engage in that type of behaviour, no longer being able to just think, I feel that I'm right about this, therefore I must be. And, you know, I did experience a lot of vulnerability in other respects, you know, in my, in my later years of prison. For example, rejecting the idea of engaging in violence meant that, you know, I was vulnerable to potential attack from people. Let me give you an example. I was walking past someone who'd just been at the office middle-aged moldy guy. And as I walked past, I heard him go, you fucking white cunt. And I turned around and looked over my shoulder, and he said, that's right, I'm talking to you. And he started approaching me to attack me. And I remember putting up my hands and saying, oh, man, you're the tough guy. You're the tough guy, my bad, you know. And I remember thinking about that afterwards and laying in my cell and thinking, I know I've done the right thing, but also there was a part of me that was going... Or is this just, you've been a fucking coward? There were times when I wondered if doing the right thing was really just a justification for not stepping up. You know, it's, it's hard to get past those ideas and those values when they've been a big part of your life for a long time. What
0: do you think the worst thing was that you did prior to the killing?
1: Yeah, you feel bad about now? Yeah, fuck yeah. I feel, there were heaps of things I did. But that which stands out in my mind is the most despicable thing that I've ever done. The most absolutely fucking heinous thing that I've ever done was when I was stealing morphine sulfate tablets off my mum when my mum was terminally ill with cancer so that I could feed my drug habit. You know, fuck. I'll, I'll never... I'll never be okay with it. Oh, just fuck. Just... <sighs> Mum died uh, two days before New Year's. Two days before I was arrested for murder. And what happened on New Year's Eve? Talk me through that day. Uh, I woke up. I got high straight away, shot morphine. I I don't remember much of the rest of the day. I remember getting contacted about scoring some more. And, you know, I was keen on that. I was always keen on that. And then, you know, the person who I'd been scoring drugs off who was connected to Boyd, who was my victim, you know, came round. He said, you know... Just have this on the house, you know, sorry to hear about your mum. If you want to score some more, that's no hassles. I've just got to go and run an errand though. So is it okay if Boyd comes in and hangs out here while I do that? I was keen as, you know, Boyd was not someone who directly dealt drugs with you or hung out with you or anything. He was the biggest Morphine sulfate supplier in Wellington. You know, he was the the top man, the big man in respect of this stuff. I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And so Boyd came in and started talking to me and started to say, ah, oh, you know, you're happy with the drugs you've been getting and the price. And I was saying, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, you know, really grateful for that. And he started saying, well, you know, are you you owe me for that. And I said, yeah, no, I really appreciate that, you know. And he said, well, uh, I want to watch you and your girlfriend have sex. <sighs> now, I know it's fucking weak of me, but I didn't want to argue with him at the time. I didn't want to just say no to that. But, you know, I was weak and I said, oh, I'll, I'll go and ask her. And then I went into the other room where Tracy was in the bedroom and I said to her, you know, fucking Boyd's fucking wants to watch us have sex. I'm going to go and say that you've said no, OK? And she said, yeah, 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 for sure. She wasn't into it at all either. I went back into the other room and I said, "Ah, oh, sorry, man. You know, Tracy's not into it. And I thought that that would be the end of it that's when he came over and sat on the couch next to me and said, oh, that's, well, that's fine. We don't need to involve Tracy then. And started, like, going to put his arm around me. And at that point, I told him to fuck off and stood up to get away from him. And we started uh, scuffling, I suppose, And there was a baseball bat in the house. And I grabbed the baseball bat and I hit him. I went to hit him in the face. And I I, I got him around, around the head, but he'd put up an arm to block it as well. And he grabbed the baseball bat. And we started struggling with the baseball bat. And he was a lot stronger than me. And I was in real bad shape. And... He started to overpower me and I yelled out to Tracy, Tracy, get the gun. And at that point, he dropped the bat and started to run out through the door, down the hallway. And I pursued him and I hit him with the bat and I hit him again and I hit him again and I hit him again until he fell and until I broke the bat against the wall trying to hit him. The reality is, is that he would've ran out that fucking door had I not chased him with that bat. But I chose to chase him with that bat. I chose to, to beat him to death. I've had the opportunity to change. He's never gonna get that opportunity. Whether he would have or not is not even relevant. He's just not gonna get that opportunity. A sister contacted me via Facebook a while ago, and you know I looked through her profile and in her pictures, her pictures of her family and that at Christmas. And you know Boyd wasn't in those pictures. Huh? You know? That's me. That's that's fucking that's my actions.
0: Wood was released in 2006 after serving 11 years of his life sentence. He completed his bachelor's and master's degrees while in prison and received a PhD in psychology six years later. You can find out more about him, including a link to his TEDx talk on his website, whatsyourprison.com. That's it for Love & Radio. This episode was produced by David Hay, with Brendan Baker and myself. David Hay's website is toyproductions.co.nz. Additional production support by Stacey Murdoch, and special thanks also to Kira O'Connor. Love & Radio is a founding member of Radiotopia. Radiotopia's founding sponsors are The Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Thanks for listening.